Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name's John Bleasdale. I am a writer and a film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Matthew Page about his new book, A Hundred Bible Films, which is coming out uh, via the BFI uh, later this month. Uh, we should perhaps have had this conversation at Easter considering its religious overtones, but I think you'll find this is a real eye-opener because uh, biblical movies have been hugely important and popular, and they've also been at the forefront front of technical changes. You know, the first widescreen film ever was The Robe, for instance, and now even the world of VR is, having a, uh, is becoming a space where... Um, uh, biblical religious themed movies uh, are, are taking place um, anyway I'm going to let Matthew talk about that because he's by f he's he's the expert if you enjoy the episode please remember to like subscribe and spread the word generally you can follow me on twitter at Dr. Jonty D-R-J-O-N-T-Y but before you do any of that please enjoy the conversation I wanted to talk to you was I'm fascinated by the Bible and, I, and and yet as a sort of genre Bible films despite being enormously popular and enormously important seem to kind of be sort of ignored is that do you think that's correct I, I do think it is actually yeah I think it's um 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, the classic, perhaps the classic example of that is is the Mel Gibson film, which um, you know he, he took it around all the studios, um, and uh, and none of them would touch it. And you can kind of understand why, because it was in a couple of dead languages and um, extremely violent. But but it was interesting how wrong all those studios were ultimately ultimately proved. So yeah, it, it is very interesting from that. And I think there's a kind of I think particularly within um, kind of film circles but partly because of the biblical epics have come to almost represent the whole any approach to the bible people just think of those and because they are you know now seen as kind of very camp and their weaknesses are more apparent i think people tend to kind of leave the whole whole thing thing alone a bit and, and perhaps you know reflecting also perhaps a bit more ambiguity um about about religion in general in in society and you know particularly the bits of society that tend to be more into more into kind of like hardcore cinephiles like ourselves how did you come about this sort of particular project what was your sort of uh, fascination well it goes back about 20 years so mm. um, at the time i was involved with it with a, with a church that was trying to make you know kind of church christianity etc quite more relevant and particularly relevant to younger people and it just seemed to me like this was a good way to kind of people aren't reading so much anymore probably there's going to be emphasis more towards visual um which 20 years ago was was not as apparent as it is now things <laughs> like youtube had yet to be born um but that just seemed to me that that was the direction of travel really so i kind of i had i set about trying to find a version that i thought would 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 do that well and so I, so I knew the kind of some of the Jesus films I was familiar with as a child. So things like Jesus of Nazareth and this other film called the Jesus film. And I, I didn't really like them. And so, yes, yeah, so I was trying to find something, I guess, that matched the image in my head. But then I quite quickly began to realize what a very kind of limited way to to approach the whole thing that was and almost kind of the opposite of the, the, the best way to approach it, really. So from there, you what what did you sort of what films did you sort of pick out that, that you could use to engage young people in uh, in your church well i think it was i think it was quite quite a while before refinement so i started working through i mean this was the kind of days when even um even amazon was a you know not a, a known quantity really they were kind of around and there were a couple of other uh, companies that were doing the same thing and they were a great advantage because you couldn't kind of pop into hmv in those days and pick up even something as popular as the king of kings so so yeah so i kind of worked my way through kind of some of the classics quite quickly and then in uh yeah then i managed to get hold of a, f a kind of tv film that was made in 1999 called just called jesus um and there was a whole kind of series of biblical adaptations made by a company italian company actually uh, called lux Avide, who who kind of partnered with a whole bunch of tv networks across uh, across europe to bring these things and they and they had one of that kind of at the time, that worked for me. Although I now kind of look back and cringe slightly at that because that isn't, uh, you know, that isn't one of my, you know, I kind of see a lot of faults with both that portrayal and that um, that film. But um, but yeah, I think it it kind of worked on that level. But there was also this um, there was also this this Christian writer at the time called Philip Yancey who described about what he quite often used to do was if they were looking at a particular story, he would take clips from five or six different films and show them all. And that that would enable them to kind of have a discussion, and it was interesting to see the stuff that came out of that. So I did I did that a few times, and it is always a really fascinating 
task because it you know you kind of realize in doing that just how individually people see things how individually you see things yourself and how you make kind of certain assumptions that you think you know well this is you know this you think you think you know you kind of got in your head how it happens and then someone comes out with a completely different interpretation looking at the same the same basic text and so so yeah so i did you know i started doing that a bit more and so almost that kind of multiplicity of different approaches um is a you know is a really interesting way to kind of come back and and expose i suppose some of our our own cultural biases or our blind spots or you know the you know the, the things we bring to we bring to reading the text that we don't we don't necessarily realize it's so interesting looking through your book reading reading your book and reading the the, the absolute breadth of um mm. of cinema involved i mean i kind of that's where i think i was it was kind of a revelation reading your book and thinking wow they i mean what other genre has such disparate talents as john houston and jean-luc godard and you know alex sarah and harold ramis and you know george stevens george stevens and william wyler you know it's, it's just got a massive breadth of, of innovation and talent and all the rest of it that goes much yeah. further than the sort, as you say, the sort of Cecil B. DeMille stereotypical epic, if you like. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. Uh, I mean, it's really interesting for me that you know some of the kind of the greatest, most revered filmmakers have all kind of come back to this topic. And I suppose in some ways we perhaps shouldn't be surprised by that because that's been true of history and you know other art forms as well. You only have to you know, for example, in in painting. But it, but you you know, again, people forget about it. And as you say, it's kind of a looked down on era of film but it has this you know has this terrific pedigree Rossellini obviously did a few as well and uh Pasolini is probably one of my favorites yeah well same here as well um Mm. so so yeah and and also as well as that kind of like those kind of revered western filmmakers there's also just this thing of it touching so many different movements you know globally so you know I think I there's one of the films in the book um that was uh, a kind of 1980s Indonesian film that was, on the one hand, it was kind of an extension of the kind of Italian peplum. Uh, it was a, called Samson Delilah, but it was this kind of it kind of moved from that into a slightly kind of horror genre almost. It, you know, it was kind of like on the way, and so yeah. But it was, and I, you know, I've never, I'd, I'd never watched an Indonesian film before, um, and I knew nothing about about kind of it this director and uh, and the star Susanna, who's, you know, the kind of queen of Indonesian horror. And I I think I found myself thinking, you know, what other project would have brought me to here? You know, it's kind of, and and it's just, you know, it's so interesting that you can kind of, one day you can be looking at something like that. And the next day you can be looking at a kind of Bollywood style film from from India, and then looking at, you know, something completely at the other end of the scale as well. And it really is, it, I think what's good about the subject is it forces you, you know, to, if you to kind of really look, take it on, it, it forces you to look into areas of film that you would never have have wandered into previously, because it is, you know, it is so is so widespread, and uh, you know, those stories are so well known in so many cultures, and 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 also kind of historically as well have been, you know, were popular as popular 125 years ago as they are they are today yeah yeah i mean let, let's go back to 125 years ago and that's sort of yeah. like the birth of cinema i mean i, I seem to remember i was re- re- researching an article once and it was something like the first fictional portrayals or the first cinematic portrayals of famous people in uh, in film 
I think it's Santa Claus, Dracula, and Jesus. It sort of goes in there. <laughs> yes. which, which kind of... It's a hierarchy. Exactly. It tells you everything you need to know about uh, cinema, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. But you say you, you're, you know, Bible films are right at the very beginning of, of, mm. of cinema. And they're also, you know, kind of almost immediately really, really popular. Um, and it's that... I mean, it's again, if you want to go with a stereotyped view of religion, it would be that idea that religion is always very conservative and and very mm. uh, resistant to change. But it's also incredibly, it's also frequently at the forefront of technological innovation. Yeah. Yeah. And very much with the, the biblical films. I think, um, you know, I mean, one of the films I've not been able to co- uh, cover in the book because, we, you know, it's not really properly in existence, but it's Melier's, um Jesus walking on the water, um, and that was, uh, it, you know, that was an opportunity for uh, Meliès, who was kind of coming from, from that kind of magician, special effects angle, and started to really showcase some of those things and bringing that in because here is a text that has, you know, gives you the opportunity to bring bring these things in, and I think you know that was that was undoubtedly a draw for some of the earliest filmmakers was you know here we can we can do things like you know make angels appear <laughs> that you can't do on a painting or you know it's a chance to kind of show these showcase these techniques uh, and so it was it was and and you kind of see that that kind of spectacular wing of the movement um, developing on and on it kind of starts off with you know simple double, double exposures and it and it and that kind of then builds into the more kind of Demiel-esque silence with the, you know, the parting of the Red Seas, and then, you know, then on to the later epics um, in the 50s and 60s that are also doing, you know, using the special effects there through to, you know, some of the CGI stuff that you see in Aronofsky's films and and, and onwards, really. Um, and even actually, and I know you're you're based in Italy, so there are a couple of films in the last decade in Italy that have kind of been feature length uh, VR films and you know again about Jesus and so you can kind of put on a headset and you can kind of I mean they're not you know hugely sophisticated uh, but you can you know put on the headset and you can kind of be at the edge of the Sermon on the Mount or whatever and have a look around and see you know you can you, you can almost have that view you can look at Jesus or you can look at the people scrolling about cheese <laughs> cheese makers on the right and uh it, you know it has that whole you know it has that whole experience and so so yeah it has been very much on that kind of progressive wing of, of technology and I think partly that's also tied into commercially the fact that they've all you know certainly at the earliest days they were they were kind of a bit of a banker because there was a ready audience for it um, mm. i mean it's the you know these days we have kind of you know we, we you know if you slap the name spider-man or batman on a film you've instantly got a kind of audience that is going to turn up regardless of what the reviews say uh and it's a little bit that same thing only the the you know in the 1890s and the early 1900s that you know this is known this is known material brand people... recognition it's brand yeah, exactly. recognition it is yeah. yeah it is and it is samson and delilah you know. you know well i know who samson and delilah are i know this story yeah like, show me it you know yeah exactly yeah and these were you know these were the popular stories in the in the 19th century and there was there was as well as you know we kind of tend to think, I suppose, of, of painting and that kind of thing. But there was quite a lot of more popularist movements going on around that time. Um, so you've got the kind of the um, depictions of Tissot and Doré uh, in their kind of, you know, 
doing a whole stack of biblical scenes, but you've also got movements in kind of opera and plays and, and the kind of popularized novels, things like Ben-Hur um, was one of a number of uh, kind of novels based on, based around the Jesus story. And quite soon, a lot of those start to then get adapted as films um, from, from very early on. Yeah, and of course, you'd, you would have had sort of like a village-based passion plays and stuff like that. Well, exactly, yeah. Sort of yeah. written into the the culture. And, and you know, people going to church. Yeah, <laughs> sort yeah. Of, or, or temple, Get, you know. Getting it every week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, see it on Saturday night and then hear about it on Sunday morning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, so we we go as you started to, as you mentioned, we we sort of have these big silence uh, with uh, D. W. Griffiths. Um, sort of, mm. I, I love your description of intolerance as this sort of, uh, you know, uh, basically a, a, a pre culture war sort of cancel culture complaint about yeah. like, oh, so I'm racist, am I? Well, maybe the real racists are you <laughs> yeah. for thinking I'm racist. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's interesting with that film because I think when I first started looking into this, there was this um, there was this view out there that intolerance was kind of this apology for Birth of a Nation, and it was kind of this, oh, you know, I've overstepped the mark there and been a bit been a bit racist, and so maybe I need to do a film about how in, intolerance is bad, and that never quite quite sat right with me. Um, it never, you know, I couldn't quite put my finger on why it didn't it didn't work for me, um, and then uh, then Donald Trump comes along. And, and this whole, I mean, you know, it's not just him as well, I suppose, you know, the, the kind of other other figures, uh, perhaps closer to home, that started using this, well, if you're telling me I can't say that about, you know, migrants, and you're calling me racist, well, you know, you're the intolerant ones. And it, it's, and, and it then, then it just kind of clicked, oh, yeah, actually, what's going on with this film is, is that he's not. He's not arguing that you know racism is, racism is bad. It, you know he's kind of gone and churned up a load more of it in this film. He's actually trying to say, you know, look at this cancel culture yeah. <laughs> in the words they, of days. They crucified yeah. Jesus. They cancelled yeah. Jesus, man. Yeah, That's... yeah. Basically, pe- people like you. It's people like you calling me racist that crucified Jesus. Is 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 the you know is this essence of that film, which is um, yeah, which is why it's not. It's not one of the ones I'm keenest on in, in the um, in the book, despite you know it's some of its strengths. But yeah, he's a sort of Lenny Reifenstahl, isn't he? You know, you sort of look at it and you go, okay, yeah, technically, technically, technically good, but um, yeah, I don't know how many more stormtroopers I need to see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it reminds and, you know, and the, no, sorry, well, go ahead. And as well, and as well as well, he was you know, a lot of the stuff he was drawing on was stuff that was coming out of Italy at the time, and so. Uh, you know, they had uh, Quo Vadis in uh, 1912, which again was one of these Victorian era novels that had um, been been adapted. And uh, Calibri, um, I always get the pronunciation of that one wrong. Cabiria? Cabiria, Kibir- yeah. yes, sorry. I always get confused between Caligari the place and Knights of Cabiria, the film. <laughs> yeah. And somehow in my head, I never, never say it properly. But that, you know, but that... That film was, you know, a film that uh, Griffiths had seen and um, drew on what drew on widely, and, and actually, the, you know, those kind of two Italian epics were were the films that really broke a lot of that ground in terms of the kind of spectacular, um, yeah, the, the spectacular sets and the kind of the crowd of thousands um, that later became a, a defining hallmark of the the epics. But um, but he's often credited with that kind of thing, which is. You know, he 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 kind of assembles a lot of 
neat tricks that others have have kind of pioneered. Um, but one of the one of those early filmmakers who who um, I mean, as with as with many books I'm reading for this podcast, it, mm. it, it keeps inspiring me to put more films on my watch list, my ever growing yeah. watch list. And um, some of the films I, I put on were as a result of reading your book with like the Michael Curtiz films uh, that mm. I've not seen the Noah's Ark and uh, uh, did he do a Samson and Delilah or Sodom and Gomorrah I did Sodom and Gomorrah yeah. Right, yeah right I knew it was something and something yeah <laughs> yeah he was involved in it was, it was kind of involved in a Samson and Delilah as well but um, it, it's not quite clear how much he was um, and that was the same year as Sodom and Gomorrah and, and another film that was a, a called The Moon of Israel uh, which was um uh, a kind of Moses type film, but but yeah, in those days, him and Demille seemed to have this kind of like respectful rivalry going on between the two of them, and they were kind of aware of each other's projects and would maybe shift their their films in a different way. But but yeah, he was probably at the end of the at the end of the twenties was probably better known for his biblical epics than Demille was really. Demille, you know, Demille had kind of done fifty odd films, and only two of them had been been biblical epics, whereas. Uh, uh, Curtis had done, you know, had done three or four, as I say, um, and yeah, some of those, um, some of those films, they, they, I mean, they kind of take a similar approach to, to intolerance in terms of um, adapting that different eras of time history and commenting on one of the others. And the Sodom Gomorrah film is kind of really interesting because, in in one of the cuts, it, it kind of has this ever kind of ever in decreasing circles thing that it kind of go you go in several layers at a time or i suppose almost like a kind of pre um uh oh i forgot what the name what's the name of the uh, nolan film um oh uh, in uh, into inception yes inception yeah I was, my head was just going intolerant i was thinking um, intercession <laughs> for some reason because yeah. we're talking about the bible <laughs> Well, yeah, fortunately, um, there was a divine intercession, and I remember the name Inception. Yeah, yeah. So you have, so it has this kind of plot structure where you start off with this kind of 1920s uh, womanist party, and then she has a dream about events happening at the same party, and then within that dream, a character starts telling the story of of Noah's Ark, and then even within that, it then kind of leaps back into this kind of Assyrian. Um, uh, events happening in Assyria as well. So it's quite a kind of, you know, it's quite a kind of complex um, plot for, well, yeah, I mean, I suppose we say plot, complex plot for 1920s, we forget that they often, you know, the plotting was quite complex by then already. But um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting that something like that is still being done and considered novel, you know, 80 years later or 90 years later. But, yeah, where it all started, it all started back there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Wait, which of those films would you recommend then? Because if, uh, you know, I, I mean... What's I'm the quite... Curtis ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which do you think um, are the most? Oh, it's, I mean, they're, they're all kind of, they all have their strengths and their weaknesses. Really. I mean, I think the kind of set design uh, on them is pretty, is pretty magnificent and out there. Uh, they do drag a little bit in some ways. Um, I, th I think, you know, I think the two I do in the book are Sodom and Gomorrah and Noah's Ark. Uh, Noah's Ark is interesting in, in on top of the kind of the biblical material that's in there um, because it, it's one of those films in that transition from talking pictures to, to you know, from silence to talkies. And so it starts, so most of it is silent, but you get these kind of few bits of early text put in there. And I always find those those films interesting because of the way they 
because it kind of works. You think it wouldn't really work and it would sound quite awkward, but it does kind of work. Um, and it's also interesting because it draws in, I mean, Curtis is basically decides to sling as many different kind of random bits of the Bible in there as possible. So he's, he's you know, technically it's about Noah's Ark, but it ends up being the scene where he's kind of on a mountain on his knees with this, this book that looks like the Ten Commandments, you know, um, the tablets of the Ten Commandments on, you know, flaming wor words before him, and it's, you know, telling him to build this ark, and it's, you know, just really, really reminiscent of Moses. And there's quite, you know, there's kind of Christ figures in there. You know, it's, it's kind of a whole jumble of things going in there, um, but particularly the um, the flood scenes in that are pretty, pretty spectacular. Um, and I, I think, I think, um, I mean, it's one, yeah, it's one of those stories where you know extras did actually lose their lives on, on the. Um, on the set of those of that film but um but yeah so those i think those are the two to sorry go on no no i was I, I was there was one that was shot in italy that you you mentioned as well that the italian extras couldn't swim and uh yeah basically I yeah i think that might have been ben the first ben uh, yeah it was it yeah, was because they're using they do the sea battle uh with yeah. like real sized ships out in the yeah. bay and and basically the extras who you know are very poor and need the work yeah. you know but aren't able to swim so yeah uh, kind of, yeah you kind of go along with it and you can see how that would would unru you know would un unwind that someone turns up and they think they're just doing this and then they get asked to do this and they're you know just how desperate for the desperate for the money um, yeah yeah and that, and, uh, that idea of making uh, sort of the contradictions of the process and and the sort of yeah. moral regard in which the text is held yeah 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 and, i mean speaking of moral regard i mean it, it doesn't take too long before um anti-semitism comes into the discussion of, of yeah uh, you you bring it up with I've, I've forgotten the title but you bring it up with a, an early-ish uh, German Der Galilea, film. yeah, Der Galilea, yes. right? Um, yeah, I mean that's that's uh, that's pretty horrific in some ways. I think. It, I mean, it's it's one of these things that it is. Um, I mean, we f we forget. I think that you know, the, the Holocaust seems so long away, far ago to some of us now. Um, but we forget that actually that was an event that happened in, in you know about a third of the way into cinema history. You know, this it was an event that happened after films like, you know, The Adventures of Robin Hood, after Casablanca, after the start of Film Noir, and all these, you know, all these things, all these films had all happened and gone before that event had even had even happened. So it's a very, it's actually a very recent event, and um, and yet we kind of forget it in a kind of it could never happen again um, way. And I think, um, and and also as a result, I think a lot of Christians are quite unaware of how complicit christianity has been in that i, th I think um most christians today would would talk about you know god as, as being a god of love and jesus being you know the kind of embodiment of that um and they don't you know and so because of that anti-semitism you know, anti or the idea of you know what happened at the holocaust seems as abhorrent to them as it does to the rest of to the rest of us but it was a very um but yeah but it, but essentially those things were kind of fed and watered uh, throughout church history and it has kind of come down to come down to kind of christian traditions and often these passion plays you know in, in parts of you know europe and, and and particularly russia for example you know often it, there would be this tradition of you know you you do your passion play at easter and then you go out and you lynch some jews because they're the they're the christ killers um and and you know they were seen as 
as yeah, different um, strata of kind of who the most valuable races of humans are. You know, this was um, hearing something the other day that was saying about this, and although the kind of order of some of those nations varies on the charts it, from in terms of like kind of western europeans they always kind of had the jewish people at the, at the bottom and so um so you know so this was the kind of the context going into the start of the 20th century um you know and we forget as well sorry i keep saying we you're, you're obviously in italy uh, these days but um but in this you know in, in england we kind of forget that you know yeah we we were against the Nazis in World War II, but in terms of our own anti-Semitism, there were 500 years where Jewish people were just banned from the country, you know, half, half a millennium. Um, and so, so, yeah, so what you see then coming out after, after the World War, obviously there's this period of anti-Semitism um, growing and uh, people being persuaded that the reason for their problems was, was because of the Jewish people and, and Hitler's whole argument. And and so you start and and when you start to see in that light some of the you know some of the kind of stereotypes uh, that are emerged in that play it, it is quite quite chilling I think I um I, I guess when I when I was younger and I was kind of uh, growing up in churches people quite often said when they thought about Jesus uh, it was Robert Powell's face they saw and this was the kind of you know that was the kind of because they knew Jesus of Nazareth. And that was how it was, and it got me. It got me thinking about that whole thing of you know, well, in Germany, in the kind of twenties and thirties, what was that image for them? Well, you know, there was a you know a reasonable chance that for some of them, it would have been their images would have been formed by by this Jesus film. And you know, of course, when you see this Jesus film, you see, um, you know, you see the characters, the Jewish characters portrayed very negatively. Um, they have the, they have these kind of hats. Um, which are kind of technically a kind of a, pre, a traditional type priest's hat, but they also look like horns. <laughs> They're kind of this kind of big pointy um, horns type thing. Um, but also just this thing that, you know, this crowd is incredibly fickle and turns to violence when, you know, when it looks like Jesus isn't going to get uh, condemned and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, you, you know, and when you start to think about how people later, you know, in later decades in Germany, leading up to the Holocaust, how they envisage Jesus, it's both, I guess, it's both kind of a, a testament to what they think, um, but it's potentially something that shaped people's thoughts as well. Um, and, and, you know, had a, had a role, to, had, you know, so it's both kind of reflected and possibly building on that. And, you know, the kind of whatever happened in the minds of that, that culture. Um, so, yeah, it's quite, it's, you know, it was quite shocking to me when I, when I first when I first watched it and put some of those connections connections together yeah I mean it, that's it's fascinating as well that it, you take this sort of cinematic tradition and and you don't you, you know I mean as we both have passion for cinema obviously you don't want to think of the thing you have a passion for being sort of the appetizer to a pogrom you know and no, no. Uh, and that's kind of that that you know that's i i guess as well this kind of film uh because it deals with ethics you know it's 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 kind of easy for a film to be unethical because mm. you know uh, it, it is insisting on an ethical framework for the universe it's an, uh, an ethical yeah. framework for everything so um you know 
I'm quite happy to watch sort of a Western and think, well, it glorifies violence, but it's a Western. I don't care. Yeah. Uh, but a, but a, a religious film which sort of glorifies as, you know, anti-Semitism or, or, or some form of the universe that I don't, I don't agree with, it's, it's much more difficult to sort of dismiss because it's in the DNA of the film. Hmm. Yeah, and I think this is what makes it interesting in the modern day uh, is that we have, you know... <laughs> I mean, it, again, in in, um, in the UK, this isn't such an issue, but in America, obviously, you have this growing um, movement within the kind of alignment of right-wing politics and evangelical Christianity to the extent that, you know, a significant proportion of those people that uh, were pro the uh, storming of the Capitol and, you know, would still vote for Trump and, you know, believe the election was stolen, uh, was stolen, you know, increasing that group is starting to look like uh, a kind of a Christian, a Christian demographic, uh, and and those, and often they're from quite large, uh, wealthy, uh, powerful churches, and a lot of those churches are now starting to make their own films and make their own versions of Jesus. You know, and, and have been doing and promoting their own their own view of things. I mean, you know, this was where Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson made his money was off the back of of those kind of churches and that sense of that is inherent throughout the whole of Trumpism that America has been you know is being done down and traditional right wing values are kind of being silenced and and people that hold to those things are being persecuted it's you know that that whole thing was expressed I think in the readiness which people took on took on Gibson's films and so I think you know as as they start to make make these productions it, it is you know, it's a concern for me, I suppose, that, you know, what are the, what are the messages of these films and what are they, what are they doing? Um, oh, it's interesting as well. The where, where is that going to lead? Oh, oh absolutely. And, yeah, you, you know, that idea that they're, they're doing things like, look, uh, you know, that they book their own cinema and, and you yeah. know, it, it gives a new model of distribution as well, which is, uh, yeah. which is, is fascinating. Um I mean, to just stay on the Gibson film for a moment, uh, yeah. obviously, you know, the anti-Semitism uh, that we talk about in the 1930s, 20s, is is yeah. absolutely, uh, I mean, that film's virulently anti-Semitic, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, yeah. It, it, um, I think there's a lot you can kind of say, certain ways you can kind of mitigate some of the things, but in terms of what Gibson's intention maybe was, you know, I don't think he deliberately set out to make an anti-Semitic film. Um, but I also think he fail, utterly failed to silence those tendencies when they were pointed out to him and, and emerged, you know, and, and they emerged. And I, I think, I mean, what you have to remember about him is his, um, his dad is a, was a Holocaust, is, you know, he's a Holocaust denier or was a Holocaust denier, which, um, you know, is pretty high on the, the scale of anti-Semitism. And if you were growing up in that atmosphere, how, you know, that would undoubtedly affect your thoughts, even as an adult, as to how you how you see some of those things. Um, and so I don't, you know, I don't think he sat down and thought, right, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to get the Jews in this film. I don't, you know, I don't know that was his intention. Um, but I think some of those elements, you know, undoubtedly leaked through his, his source material was already anti-Semitic. Um, and and the, you know just the ways he depicts things, the stuff that is, the stuff that's between the text and the image on the screen, I think particularly is there, um, and, and particularly you know for example the way that kind of Pontius Pilate is this kind of 
noble philosopher kind of figure in the film and he's kind of wandering around his apartment and it's kind of full of like you know it feels a little bit like a kind of first century ikea and there's <laughs> you know there's you know floating white sheets sheets that are fluttering in the breeze and he's there going oh you know should i kill jesus should i either on the other hand you've got this kind of caiaphas who's portrayed as a Jew, the jewish leader who seems to hold more influence over Pilate, you know, than, than, than he would be in any way historically like. Um, and he is in this kind of like, this version of Jabba's lair, almost uh, from, from uh, Return of the Jedi. Yeah, and, um, you know, I, I kind of made this point years ago, and a couple of other people have picked it up independently, I think, of, you know, just some of the similarities in terms of the kind of the way the scene's lit and the, and the way it's constructed and the kind of costumes of some of the guards. And this, you know, it's this kind of underground lair where they're all kind of plotting to, to uh, you know, to get Jesus and have this trial. And he's this kind of, you know, he's not a, a attractive man. He's kind of slightly overweight. He has bad teeth and he's got all, you know, huge amounts of bling on. Um, and... Yeah, and and it's you know, and all of that is is interpretation that would you know, it, as I say, you know, it wasn't set around deliberately to cause those things, but it completely puts, you know, completely staggers those two characters against each other and kind of implicates the Jews and things far more than than would have been historically likely, and and I think then the biggest problem with with Gibson's film, I think where it where it gets beyond beyond that realm of well. This was in there and it, it it came out unbeknown to him um was that what he was that when people started pointing out to him their concerns about it you know particularly the uh, anti-defamation league the kind of the, the jewish organization to kind of counter anti-semitism when they started pointing out some of these things instead of um saying oh that's you know that's quite worrying i wouldn't want to you know i wouldn't want to do that and you know maybe i need to make some changes and can you advise me on those changes what he actually did was he then kind of leveraged that into a publicity campaign and made it about, you know, these people aren't wanting to get these films. They um, tried to crucify Jesus as well. Yeah, I mean, it was a real, it was a real persecution narrative and it was a, it became a kind of, there was this kind of badge of honor that if you support this film, you're supporting the gospel and otherwise you're against these kind of, you know, it's the, it's the studios, which obviously there's a, a, even a connotation with that of kind of Jewishness. Um, but, but yeah, but particularly the way that whole, that whole thing was orchestrated against these people doing, it. I mean, there was one of the lines, there's one of the lines that's always, uh, controversial is, um, the, you know, the bit in Matthew's gospel where the Jewish people say his blood be on us and our people, which is a verse that has been used historically to, to justify anti-Semitism and acts of violence against Jewish people, because, well, you know, your ancestors back in, um, 33 AD said this so you know um and and he was kind of told that you know you should you know you really need to take that out and eventually he left it in the Aramaic but didn't subtitle it which um is you know um could it could certainly have been better but he also said about that line he said you know he kind of went on the record and said you know if I'd have if I'd have taken that out you know if I'd left that in there they'd have been coming after me and this, you know, this idea that you know they'd have you know been attacking it. I can't quite remember the exact phrasing, but they'd have been attacking his house, as if you know, and yeah, I mean, and and that just you know to me that just felt that you know this this moves us beyond the kind of well you know maybe this wasn't his intention, but um, he's been very you know been very careless with it, and he's obviously got stuff to deal with to this level of actually he 
you know, he's been told about this and his response has been rather than to listen and to make changes, he's gone out and he's used it to make himself millions of dollars. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to, I think I'm a little bit more cynical in regard to Mr. Gibson. Uh, I think mm. that he fully intended to be anti-Semitic. I mean, he's, really. um, well, I mean, in terms of his father, he's been pushed, he was pushed repeatedly yeah. to, I mean, his father is this sort of hardcore far-right, Catholic who wrote a book called Is the Pope Catholic about John Paul II <laughs> yeah. basically saying he's not Catholic because he's nowhere near right wing enough he's nowhere near traditional enough yeah. uh, and when he was ta- asked about it in interviews Gibson said um, my father has never said an untrue word in his life You know, when specifically asked about uh, the Holocaust denial he said yeah. my father's never lied to me he's never said an untrue word um, and uh, according to Joe Esterhaus and, and several other, uh, Winona Ryder, I think, as well, he yeah. refers frequently to Jewish friends and colleagues as oven dodgers. So yeah. I, I I just don't, I'm, I, uh, yeah. I mean, and you've also, you've got Satan in that movie sort of popping, manifesting itself oh, in yeah. Jewish children. You know yeah. I mean, it just... Yeah, and, that, it, and those are particularly problematic, those scenes where... Yeah, as you say, you know, these Jewish children who, you know, are wearing yarmulkes and, you know, basically become demons. And they, yeah. And and again, you know, the children of the Jews is another just stereotype. It, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I I have a, I have a, a I guess, a, a window in terms of which I see it, of which, which I see a window of possibility. And I think the kind of the most, I suppose I've, what I was saying before is probably the most, um, the most leeway, I'd, you know, I'd be prepared to, you know, to give him on it. But at the same time, there are a lot of, as you say, there are a lot of other troubling stories, and yeah, it, it, it um, there's a, yeah, I, you know, I, I think, yeah, as you say, the Winona Ryder quotes and just fit in with this bigger, this bigger narrative. And I, I hadn't, I didn't recall, I don't recall the um, the quote about the the father never having said a true word. That's pretty, mm. uh, that's pretty damning. I met him once, Gibson, and he's a very, um, he's a very, very, very strange character. He's extremely fidgety and nervous and very, uh, really uncomfortable with journalists for for perhaps obvious reasons. Um, But he was, uh, what was the film? It was the war film he was, he he was promoting the... um, Hacksaw Ridge. Is it Hacksaw Ridge? Is that the one? The one with Andrew Garfield? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, sort of to round off this uh, the passion, uh, our passionate passion discussion. Yeah, I, I really liked the movie. <laughs> you know, I mean, I went to the, I went to the cinema yeah. to see it. Um, as you imagine, in Italy, it was very uncritically. Um, well, no, that's not fair. But it was it was hugely popular, and uh, yeah. you know, cinemas were full. I mean, cinemas were Avengers full. Oh yeah, I mean, like it—it it became, it, you know, there's a, there is a cinema-going tradition in Italy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And everything, but there are also free, frequent moments where everybody who doesn't go to the cinema goes to the cinema. So at Christmas yeah. is, is traditionally that. Uh, you know, people who only go to the cinema once a year go, go at Christmas. And right. uh, the Mel Gibson film became that that thing and it was highly effective as a you know mark commode described and quentin tarantino among others described it as a horror movie and yeah it, yeah it, it kind of works as that sort of hostile style torture porn as well yeah yeah well i mean it, it, you, you were saying i was listening to um to some of the uh the podcast i think it was with kim newman you did the other day and saying about how um, you know, the kind of the rise of kind of the torture porn films at the same time, the kind of Saw franchise and so on. And it does, you know, fit into that that angle of, you know, that kind of niche of, of horror cinema. And a lot of the kind of, you know, a lot of the tropes right from the start, there's this kind of like blue filter on that opening scene in the Gethsemane. Um, and it is very effective. And I do remember, you know, really being wowed by those, those opening scenes and about how they kind of, you know, really brought something else that none of the other none of the other Jesus films had brought at that um, that stage. Um, so yeah, so there are there are you know there are bits of it that are that are incredibly incredibly well done and you know and are very powerful and it's not and you know it's it's not surprising in some ways that so so many kind of parts of the church were so taken with it because it mm. was you know it's very effectively done. Plus you've got the kind of Gibson star status. Um, the, you know at the time as well and and you know a lot of people are looking for to still kind of talk about a sequel and a kind of passion of the christ too or um not the one from the family guy um <laughs> or the, uh, you know kind of around the resurrection um and there's a lot of enthusiasm for that i mean well let's let's sort of as a corrective let's talk about sort of the the way the bible has also been used uh f from another sort of political side Mm. in the sense of, of of using it as a sort of liberation theology and, yeah. and in films i mean i was taken with your um description of the film green pastures where you have you mm. have what 50 60 70 years before uh, morgan freeman plays god you have a black a black version of god yeah yeah i mean that's a, that, i mean that's a really interesting film and it's you know it's not without its um question marks uh, from a racial angle but it is Certainly at the time, it was very progressive. You know, this was not that long from um, after the kind of end of end of slavery in America. Um, and it was certainly, you know, 30 years before that, or, you know, 25, 30 years before um, the kind of civil rights movement in the, six, in the, in the 60s. Um, and you have this whole, you know, all black cast playing all, playing all the characters. Um, and, you know, particularly this very... Um, very amiable, uh, down to earth, relatable uh, God character, um, 
that is, you know, yeah, that is, is shown is shown as God and is shown as the creator and and kind of has these has these kind of interactions with the, the people as well. Um, so yeah, so that you know that was that was a big step forward. And there were at the time a number of these um, felt there were kind of a, you know quite a, a lot of kind of early um, African American cinema was was starting to emerge at that time. Um, and some of it made by white producers um, and maybe white directors, but but these were films that that brought us and have recorded for posterity some of the work, you know, some of the um, strong work by early, you know, by early talking era black actors that that otherwise we wouldn't we wouldn't have or we we would only see in the kind of stereotypical type roles you get in you know films like Gone with the Wind and so on. Yeah, and it's it's a you know it's it's a wonderful film. I mean, the soundtrack on it is 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 just yeah is is just fantastic, and it you know really really draws you in into into the story. But yeah, it's a great movie. That, yeah, go, going straight to the top of my watch list. That, that film, just on the basis of that description. Yeah, yeah, um, it's uh, yeah, yeah, it's um, and you know, yeah, and it's funny as well. It's you know, it kind of it isn't a film that is taking itself overly serious but it i mean it's kind of a really interesting balance because it's quite i suppose it you know it reflects a kind of relatively stern theology i suppose you would say um mm. the, the kind of the idea of you know god's displeasure at the world around him and the way that's explained and shown often in a kind of modern way is is in the mix but at the same time it, it's you know it's playful and it's joyous and it's um it's slightly tongue-in-cheek and it you know it isn't taking itself seriously and it's a very, yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a very kind of creative approach to, to the, the material because you have these children that are in Sunday school and kind of, you know, they're, they're Sunday school teachers telling them about the stories and they're kind of picturing, picturing things in their head at the same time. So, so yeah, that is a, it's one worth, definitely worth checking out, I think. So as we move through sort of the, the history, because your, your book is sort of organised mm. chronologically, so you get a real yeah. feel of the sort of uh, how things are developing, how things are coming back. I mean, would you describe that sort of post-war period which saw, you know, Ben-Hur and Ten Commandments and The Robe, is that kind of the, the sort of golden age of the biblical epic? Um, well, I'd say not quite, actually. Um, I mean, I think there's probably three periods when you know, think it was really happening um, <laughs> on a big scale. Um, and certainly that was one of them. There was there was a period in the 20s as well, which, I mean, we've already kind of talked about Curtis and uh, Curtis and DeMille, um, and, you know, and, and the original Ben-Hur as well. Um, so those films were, were really big then and, and kind of, you know, the big films of the time then. Um, actually, the period around kind of 1908 to 1913, there was something like 90 to 100 biblical films made in those kind of five or six years. Um, they were all quite short at that stage, but um, it really was, you know, doing all the different stories. And um, yeah, so that, you know, so that in terms of the, like the number of films, I think that is the, that is the heaviest concentration. Um, but yeah, by the time the kind of 50s and 60s comes along, you get uh, DeMille kicks things off with Samson Delilah. And yeah, that does kind of massive business and basically reinvents the genre. I mean, obviously, you've kind of had the war and the, the money that's been available to create these films has been a bit lacking. Um, but, but from then on, I think for like out of the 11 years that follow then, so 1949 to 1959, 
biblical epics were the top box office film of the year for either four or five of them i think it was four and then the rogue was only second in 1953 <laughs> um, um but you know you get this it's you know it's a it's a kind of it's the closest thing i suppose there is to the what we have in modern day cinema with the marvel films and that you know nowadays we have the biggest grossing films and the box you know for the year are dominated by the kind of marvel comic strip uh, films and we've never really had another period where that's been so so one side in terms of, of, of a genre genre um and now we have multiple of those films in the top 10 for any year but you know for those period it was probably as close as as close as we got to it because they were you know they were coming coming tops in the box office and they were, were proving incredibly popular there could be an argument that there's a level of consistency there that is, uh, you know, I mean, th- theologically rather than uh, based on, it's not actually, ba- Iron Man isn't actually based on the, the Bible, but, um, no. but you know, the idea of intersension of higher powers in the affairs yeah. of a relatively passive human race that sort of suffers a series of calamities, you know, on an epic scale. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities genre-wise in terms of you know in terms of those two two genres, the biblical epics and uh, and the comic book films. You, you know, as you say, you've got this these kind of these few individuals acting and 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 standing up for what's right and and kind of doing the work you know the work for you. You've got the kind of these kind of miraculous powers that are in the mix and that are kind of really making the difference. You've got the the idea of of evil and the enemy uh, that's to be opposed. There's a kind of, you know, there's a kind of, I guess, theme through those films about, you know, what is and what isn't American values or, or kind of the, the right values to live by that kind of comes through again and again. And, and, you know, that was a big area of the biblical epics. I mean, you know, a lot of the biblical epics were were really about the Cold War. Um, I mean, you know, DeMille, particularly in the Ten Commandments, is is kind of forcing that home. And, I th- you know, and, and, and again, you see that in a lot of the... You know, in in a lot of the Marvel epics, you know, the whole, I mean, just the whole Captain America thing is a, you know, is a classic piece of, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's American propaganda. I mean, you know, that has a very, saying that has a very, connota- has a very negative connotation. And I don't mean it to be necessarily quite as negative as that, or maybe, maybe still a little bit. <laughs> but, um, but it, you know, but it undoubtedly is because you have this, you know, it's kind of, it's done in this way of, you know, in the fifties they did this kind of thing, um, and uh, you know, it, it kind of, it likes to have its cake and eat it, I think, a little bit with, you know, how the kind of Captain America's character is seen because it's kind of seen as, you know, a slight relic from the fifties that, you know, but we still have here, but at the same time he is also a heroic, film, you know, character played by a. Uh, you know, heroic-looking, muscular actor who is who is saving the world, and um, you know, and a lot of that is done by his kind of skills of collaboration as well as his bravery. But it, it you know, again, it is this thing of largely American-based superheroes, um, they, you know, saving the world and fighting these external powers. Um, and there is quite a lot of myth-making going on that are, I suppose. <sighs> what's the word um firming up the uh you know this idea of kind of american um, you know america is the world's policeman or america protecting the world from um exterior forces that would seek to undo our, our way of life so so yeah 
there are there are quite a lot of thematic similarities, I think, between between the biblical epics and 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 the, the Marvel stories. I love the way as well you describe the some of those films, and and these are films directed by the the you know fantastic filmmakers. I mean George Stevens directing. Mm. Um, uh, what was well? There was Nicholas Ray doing uh, King British, of Kings. Story. So it was King of Kings with Nicholas Ray with Jeffrey Hunter, and then uh, it was uh, George Stevens was great story ever told with, with uh, Max, Max von Sydow. Yeah, and and you yeah. you say how he films it like an uh, like a western. He basically makes a, a western out of uh, yeah, and that's a that's a, a really interesting point. I thought, and especially <laughs> I've got to tell you that this this story about John Wayne being the centurion. Um, and so oh, yeah. there's a story that someone told of George Stevens uh, saying, uh, giving direction to John Wayne and John Wayne delivering the line, he really was the son of God. And uh, jo- George Stevens apparently said, oh, very good, John, but can you give it more awe? And uh, he, so John Wayne went, ah, oh, he really was. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. but it, it's. Uh, and then, yeah. of course, with the Coen brothers in Hail Caesar, they sort of recreate that scene with uh, George Clooney yeah. as a behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, love, uh, I love Hail Caesar. It was, for quite a while, it was on the list that was going to go in the book, but I, I kind of eventually, eventually took it out reluctantly. But it's, um, yeah. It's a great, great film for people that love biblical epics. Yeah, films about making films about the Bible. I mean, you you mentioned Pasolini's Ricotta as well, which is a really obvious yeah. sort of uh, Orson Welles starring. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's a short film, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's a really interesting. Movie. I mean, this was this is the film that actually got Pasolini in trouble. Got you know, this is a, I think it's a suspended prison sentence. It you know got him to real hot water for for blasphemy and. Yeah, you see it today, and it was so it was so tame. Um, but it's essentially it's this critique of you kind of have all these actors that are on this set of a of a passion play, um, and it it you know, and they're all just kind of partying around and dancing and and uh, you know persecuting one of the extras that's playing one of the thieves on the cross, and uh, you know teasing rather than you know physically bullying, but. And and then, you know then it's kind of cut in action and then you see in this kind of almost lurid Technicolor, um, although kind of man I think it's mannerist style actually it's you know there's one one painter that's really similar to of, of the kind of deposition of Jesus being brought off the cross and it's you know all these actors you've seen kind of fooling around moments ago and all this kind of vulgarity going on behind the scenes producing this kind of supposedly this this holy moment so. So yeah, so that's uh, that's one of those as well. And as you say, there's Hail Caesar. And there's quite a lot of films that are that are kind of a film about passion plays, where the you know, passion plays within passion plays. So Jesus of Montreal um, was one, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a really that's a really good one, um, where you kind of have this. They are modern day actors, but they're playing um, they're playing. Jesus and the disciples in this passion play and their lives start to, you know, the character who's playing Jesus, his life starts to become, starts to dovetail with Jesus's life. And so by the end, you can hardly tell them apart. So, um, 
that's that's one of those. I mean, Jesus Christ Superstar actually is one of those, um, mm. the, the film version, because you have this kind of group of students getting off a bus at the start and they've, you know, got their props coming off. You can see a kind of cross coming off the top of the bus and all this stuff. And then at the end, they all, you know, they all get back on the bus, um, except the actor playing Jesus, who's kind of mysteriously disappeared. But that's that's one of those. And there's at least one other that is... Um, oh, uh, yeah, and um, uh, He Who Must Die. Um, mm. Which was a kind of another another film based on uh, Kazantzakis novel. Um, uh, who, who wrote the the Christ, novel? Christ was crucified. Yeah, right. he wrote the novel, and that was adapted by um, Jules Dassin. And and you know, and you have a similar thing there of there being you know this this modern day story and this kind of immigration problem and the characters playing playing the Jesus and the disciples start to kind of take on their values um, to the extent that uh, that one, that one, the, the kind of the parallel takes over to the point that actually the film never, the, the play never actually happens because the characters are so radically, you know, come, because it, this opposition between the, the authorities and the characters playing the Jesus and the disciples comes, comes to a head before it ever gets there. So, so yeah, so that's quite a kind of interesting, interesting subgenre really mm. and then i mean to talk about sort of generic breadth i guess um i i really i really appreciated the fact that you put in the 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 comedies you know life of brian is 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 kind of a a, a very obvious one and i've always yeah. thought life of brian got an unfair rap in terms of the blasphemy controversy because it's it's definitely irreverent but you know, comedy, yeah. who was it? Chesterton said that, you know, comedy is a way of saying serious things in a funny way. And, and I think that's what Life of Brian does. It's very serious in, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, it. it yeah, it is very serious um, behind all the comedy. And I think it's, um, yeah, it, it, it certainly has its its points that it goes for and it, it makes them it makes them very well. Um, and I mean, there's, yeah, there's the classic clip um, of the, of the uh, the show, uh, is it Saturday night, Friday, Friday night, Saturday morning, um, with uh, was it Tim Rice hosting a debate between uh, John Cleese and Michael Palin, and on the one hand, and Malcolm Muggeridge and um, and the Bishop of Southwark on the other hand, um, and you know, and, and in that you can kind of see how very seriously uh, Cleese and Palin are taking it, and and the points they're making, how much they're defending the artistic integrity of their film and what they're doing and the and contrastly you know in con on the other hand side of things you have uh, Muggeridge and um uh, the Bishop of Southwark kind of dashing off these kind of pre-prepared sounding lines about you know 10th rate movies or you've got your 30 pieces of silver or whatever and you know not really engaging with the issues that that it raised um yeah, so it, I mean, it is a yeah, it is a it is a fascinating it is a fascinating film, and um, you know there there are I, I know at least um, uh, there's a scholar um, called Katie Turner who's who's got her own book on this subject coming out sooner, uh, specifically around costumes, and she's done a piece of Life of Brian saying that actually the costumes in Life of Brian and, and some of the sets are are perhaps the most accurate of all of all the, of all the Jesus films. Um, which is, you know, which is really interesting. And um, and they do go to, you know, they they have really done their research. You know, they're not just kind of like dashing off a few easy, cheap jokes. They, you know, they they do get a lot about the period and that kind of, you know, for example, the environment of the 
different apocalyptic preachers all preaching their own kind of versions of what happens you know that is there's there's a lot in that there's a, you know that that was a you know there was a, a lot of that around at the time and and yeah and the kind of the relationship between rome and the jews as well um is is is, is kind of better i mean obviously it's comic <laughs> but you're in no doubt in that film in that film for example that rome is in charge and that it's not you know and that jesus is executed by the romans he's not you know so so yeah it's uh it's both a very serious film and a very funny film but um and 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 the everydayness of crucifixion you know yeah yeah t- take take a cross first first door on the left you know it's yeah uh, and, uh, I, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I, I mean, I think that scene where you have basically a bunch of prophets and Brian inadvertently becomes one, you know, in a yeah. space of three minutes, he kind of accidentally becomes a prophet, founds a religious movement, and they've already killed their first heretic within like three yeah. minutes. You know, it's yeah. uh, it's astonishing in that in Yeah, that the, econo- the economy of that that scene is just brilliant isn't it that well that kind of yeah passage is yeah goes goes from that thing of him literally just dropping out of the sky and um and landing there which is i mean is also an interesting you know him dropping out of space into into a role of a prophet is also an interesting comment i think on uh, on on christianity um and, and as you say very swiftly the, the kind of arguments build up <clears throat> and people start you know people start taking on taking on things that that weren't on his radar at all, weren't his intention at all. But I mean, I guess that's what the film, you know, it's one of the things the film is is putting across that that, you know, these things have been added on on top of top of the original things Jesus Jesus said, um, and become the things that people people fight over. So coming up to sort of the present day, I know that we're we're jumping over a lot, but I mean, uh, people who are listening to this can. Uh you know, can buy your book. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. <laughs> and fill in and fill in any gaps that I've inadvertently left. But coming up to the the, the present day, um, mm. I'm very curious to sort of see the new Terence Malick um, yeah. way of the wind, which which sort of promises to be. I mean, we've had some Bible films. I guess we've had um, Last Days in the Desert, the Ewan McGregor. Um, version and the Joaquin Phoenix Mary Magdalene and then we also had the Old Testament the Ridley Scott and the uh, Darren Aronofsky's yeah Yeah, which sort of felt like it was going there was going to be a new trend of sort of Old Testament kind of fantasy films kind of I I got Mm. the feeling it was going towards a Lord of the Rings uh, you know that's that was the generic space it was attempting to fill yeah, I mean the uh, yeah, I, I really like the Aronofsky film actually. Um, I, I feel I li- like it much more than the than the Ridley Scott one. Um, I mean, partly it's you know it's a very it's a totally Jewish take on the on the story. Um, it, you know, it is, it, and and that's you know one of the things that makes it so interesting. Um, but it's also wedded in this idea. I think we can kind of, with, I mean, it's a, you know I'll come back to this again and again really. But we're so um familiar with these stories that we forget about how how you know how different they are and how odd they are in some ways and noah Noah, i think is the classic example because noah these days is the is the kind of you know the children's plaything the kind of nice boat with all the different animals and all those all those kind of things but but in the you know the actual story is you know i did a talk years ago called biblical horror stories for children about all these things in the old 
about all these things in the Old Testament that are, um, you know, like the Noah story, are kind of mass, uh, kind of mass acts of destruction or you know, horrific violence. Um, literally genocidal i mean it's literally genocidal god in that in that yeah well yeah it's in several places that then get kind of like the you know the unpalatable aspects get stripped away and you kind of end up when before you know where you look we've kind of got this thing of you know well here's noah now is a children's it's considered a children's story and you know and when you, you know you think about it for a minute it's not at all a children's story and and i think you know what's yeah, you know, what's really good about that film is the is the kind of way Russell Crowe's character, who I think is yeah, as his kind of star persona, is a bit unlikable. Um, and is you know he's I mean he's, he's a kind of it's a really interesting persona as a star, and it, and particularly in that film, but he is kind of pursuing a logic within it. You know, at the point where he's thinking of you know killing his own grandchild. That he kind of thinks he is, you know, there's a kind of religious celebrity there. He thinks he's doing what God wants him to do. He, you know, sees that makes consistent sense. And he's got a real, he's not doing it because he is a, you know, he thinks being a homicidal maniac is a good thing, but but he doesn't, he doesn't realize, or or you know, or perhaps he, you know, he he kind of sees this logic through. And and that's, you know, and and actually he ends up being this kind of Abraham figure that is wrestling about whether he should kill his own, his own kin. Um and you know and that's yeah and and i think without that you don't end up with that thing of the fact that you know the story as it is is that everyone was wiped out except these eight characters um and and so so partly because of that and also partly the stuff with the i mean you mentioned lord of the rings you've got these kind of like uh the kind of rock monsters at the star and you know people people hated the rock monsters <laughs> Um, well, you know, I actually kind of really like for, for two reasons, per- partly because they've got the kind of Ray Harryhausen um, nod there in, in spades, but also because, you, don't, you know, there is this passage just before the Noah story that comes in that does talk about these characters from heaven coming down and, and mating with the, you know, the human women and there being these, you know, it's all this kind of stuff that, again, you know, I think most Christians um, would would not even kind of recognise as, being part of the story and yet you know and yet it is part of the story and we forget because those bits seem weird they get kind of left out of it and then we forget that they were there in the first place and that are you know that often the bible is a very you know parts you know the bible is often very a very weird book and you know particularly particularly genesis and and noah really gets that sense of this is an odd book and i'm gonna and rather than kind of trying to present this kind of sanitized 20th century 20th century version uh 21st century version of it um he kind of really leans into that into that weirdness and is happy to kind of like to go with the dark you know the darkness of it. it's um yeah i think it's a i think it's a really interesting film mm-hmm. and then of course you know go, goes even further with mother um yeah i mean which yeah. isn't isn't strictly speaking kind of a biblical film in the sense that but i mean it, it's kind of it's, it's right there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a it's kind of like a parable as well. So it's you know it's yeah. it's, it's doing that thing of mate forcing you to say, oh, that represents this and that represents that. Yeah, I'm I'm really interested as to what you know. I, I feel like some of the changes between those two films for Aronofsky. I think at the end of Noah, there's still this note of hope that you know something you know can be done, and that humanity is possibly savable and the planet is possibly savable and it feels by the time mother comes along that you know that that has has maybe 
this may be gone then it is just the pessimism then of you know we're not going to be able to pull this thing around and we are all a bit doomed uh, we're in a we're in a cycle which is doomed to repeat itself yeah, um, yeah. and and sort of uh i i was thinking of this recently because i recently rewatched uh, a serious man which mm. is which um to me is the book of job it's like uh, yeah. it's almost um I mean, obviously, it's updated and all the rest of it. It's, uh, but it, it just feels like a book, the, the book of Job, and that also yeah. makes me think of Terence Malick's uh, uh, "The Tree of Life" as being. And it, yeah. it, it also just makes me think, which is something which <laughs> which your book has done, Gigantu an effort just to make me think. Um, <laughs> but uh, of how sort of like we do have these sort of religiously inspired filmmakers who might well be. Uh, atheistic or, or I, I don't know what the Coen brothers would identify as but there's very much that that's in filmmaking I mean I think Terrence Malick I, I've got a feeling he's a devout Christian and um, yeah you know that's that seems to come through his films um, almost from the very beginning yeah I think I think I think I agree with you on that um, but but yeah as you say I mean the Coen you know the Coens have made a, a they've done as you say serious man which is a kind of very much a job thing um and, and obviously we've already talked about hail caesar um and there is this whole i mean yeah there is this whole kind of question about god and morality um that kind of seeps through their whole their whole uh, filmography really um yeah they are kind of fascinating filmmakers and i think that is the you know that is the case with a lot of the people that make the books that make the films that I talk about in the book that they that even if they're not um you know what even if they're not necessarily practicing Christians or you know, very overt about it that it still is something that they feel in them and they kind of wrestle with that kind of stuff um themselves and and it still is something that takes up a lot of their their concerns and their headspace and I think you see it in um you know, you see in a lot of Rossellini's films and you can kind of see across his life a kind of movement from from a position of faith to a position of um, unbelief. Um, and, you know, Scorsese as well. Oh, of so, course, yeah. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I, I recognise that that's, he's he's a filmmaker we haven't actually talked about. And, and, of course, he made one of the most significant films of the 80s that, uh, yeah. in terms of The Last Temptation of Christ. But I was, just yeah. to go back a second, I wonder Sorry. if maybe um, the... Uh, Maybe it's something to do with Jewish filmmakers as well, that um, some people like the Coens, there's more of a Jewish tradition of not necessarily having to be, uh, you know, performatively devout. You can still, mm. and, and you can even leave the religion, but you can still really think hard about the religion. And I guess in Christianity, you, you kind of don't have that as much, except perhaps maybe the lapsed Catholic is yeah. a, a sort of, you know... Um, I mean, personally, my background is I come from a, a, a fairly, um, I wouldn't say strict, but but a fairly heavy sort of Catholic background. Right. Um, and I'm, which, you know, in, in true stereotypical fashion, I, I sort of renounced when I was in my teens. Yeah. Um, but I think my atheism is very Catholic. It's a very Catholic yeah. atheism. Um, and my interest in the Bible and in religion generally has, has never, if, if anything, it's kind of increased as my, 
uh, as my disbelief has has sort of matured, you know, as has been mm. confirmed. But um, I just I just wonder if maybe um, Jewish filmmakers like the Coens uh, find it, uh, um, you know, find find that there's a, a they can go back to these stories as stories. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's very astute. I think that's I think that's probably true. Um, you know, because they're very, you know, they're they're still a huge part of Jewish tradition and Jewish um, celebration, and, and you know, the kind of the, the I guess the kind of Jewish calendar really, which people celebrate whether you know whether or not you're necessarily believing it and practicing in it. And something like, I mean, one of the other. Um, films uh i mean we mentioned comedies ago one of the more recent ones is a film called sadomasochism by um a jewish filmmaker called nina paley who is also a kind of uh jewish atheist agnostic um and that's really you know that really kind of captures that uh, you know that which you just talked about that you know sense of connectedness to to it and um the kind of the tradition coming down from her father and her her father's father um of um a kind of i don't skeptical sounds a bit too hard um but but certainly a kind of questioning of the grand you know the kind of grandfather questioning the traditional narrative and then you know the father and the you know also kind of carrying some of those questions through to the um the, the granddaughter who's the, who is the filmmaker that is um you know that has kind of rejected the belief side of things but is still very much involved in in the kind of the the the, the idea of the of family and the kind of the family celebrations and and the and the traditions side of things as well. I mean, it's, it's a kind of fascinating uh, fascinating film from that point of view. And I think you know there are there are a number of there are a number of I mean you know I mean Spielberg is another interesting example. Um, you know, in films from Close Encounters of the Third Kind through to I think he was one of the uh, producers on Prince of Egypt, um, and that that you know again. Those kind of elements, um, you know, the Close Encounters of the Third Kind reworks a lot of the Ten Commandments, for example, doesn't it? And it, um, mm, yeah, even even ET. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, ET is a ET is a classic Christ figure in a way, in a mm. way, and um, also a kind of wizened a wizened rabbi. Sort of when they when he has that white uh, cloth over his head, it it has mm. a, a sort of rabbinic, uh, yeah, sort of appearance. God, I mean. This this conversation could easily be as long as one of these Bible <laughs> epics because it's because uh, there's so much to talk about. It's such a rich subject, and I, mm. I guess sort of going back to the very beginning, so we can maybe uh, to round this off. Um, mm. Maybe the reason we don't talk about these films is because we have a sort of um, there's a kind of politeness around religious faith in yeah. in public discourse that we kind of like we're we're sensitive of saying you know are you a practicing Christian or or are you, you know, because that's that's totally up to you, you know. But yeah. it kind of impoverishes the discourse if we're not sort of upfront about it. I feel. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's um. It, it's kind of interesting, you know, that it, that it is something we don't, you know, that doesn't necessarily get talked about so much. The you know this this collection of films because they are, you know, I feel that it's. It, it still feels to me like it's an important element of society, you know, of society and what's Im impacting things. Um, and I guess, you know, people have been talking about living in a post-secular age ever since 
um, 9-11. Um, and I think initially people saw that in terms of, uh, in terms of Islam. But I, you know, I do think with the situation with Trump, um, that that has kind of come round and that there is now this, you know, this radical group within it, you know, that isn't, you wouldn't necessarily say it's mainstream, but it's certainly very significant in size that is now, you know, in this, in this situation in America. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I really feel about faith is that it, um, there's quite often a lot of debate about, you know, does it, does it improve society or does it make society worse? Um, and I think it, you know, it kind of does both. <laughs> I think, you know, I think for some people, um, for, you know, for some people we've seen like religion has been abused and caused a lot of suffering to, 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 to people, um, on a huge, huge extent that maybe wouldn't have happened if they weren't, uh, in a religious context. Um, and at the same time, you know, there's an awful lot that, that Christians have done and that have taken, some of the teachings used more literally, and you know, and people of other faiths as well, and from that drawing on their own traditions, that have, um, you know, that have really enriched societies. You know, and huge amounts of kind of charities and all those kind of things set up by by people that were basically feeling challenged by those texts. Um, and you know, some atheists would say, well, you know, I don't need um, religion to make me a better person, and I, you know, I, I believe that's definitely true in a lot of cases. Um, in, many, you know, in many, many cases. Um, but I think for some people, that is a that is a factor, and the fact that they, you know, that they that they believe in something bigger than themselves does inspire them to do good stuff. Um, and so when you've got this kind of chasm of, on the one hand, you've got, you know, religion can inspire um, people to be better and to make the world a better place, and on the other side, you've got this thing of religion can make people worse and can be part of the tool that causes something like the storm in the capital. Um, for example, you know, why would you, you know, why would we not want to be um, taking part in that discussion and trying to, you know, move the needle in, in, in the way that is going to make the world well better, even if, you know, even people that aren't, you know, that don't have, that don't have their own faith anymore, don't have their own belief anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I told that's a that's a, a really um, a great sentiment to to sort of come draw to a close. But before we finish, I have I obviously have to ask you what film book you would recommend to our listener. Um, what, I mean, this may well have been done before, but I uh, I guess continuing the hundred theme, um, I love Ebert's uh, hundred greatest films or hundred the hundred great. I can't can't remember the, the exact title now. Do you know what? I don't think um, anybody has chosen that up until now. I don't have think they that, not? I don't oh. think that's the first. Oh, it's marvellous. I Yeah. It, I mean, it was one of the... I mean, the book is... Part, you know, my book is a part of a series of... Um, the, the BFI has done of 100, you know, 100 American horror films and 100 Westerns and, and 100 Bollywood films and so on. So so that was a, part, you know, a big part of... The reason I wanted to do it in that format, but also I love I love Ebert's writings and there's films I know I've watched because I know that even if I don't enjoy the film, I'll enjoy hearing him him, him writing about it afterwards, and just his you know just yeah just his kind of turn of phrase and his kind of ability to draw you into a story, um, I, I think is uh, yeah 
I think is amazing. So You've I, got an amazing turn of phrase as well, Matt. I, I oh, uh, there was a phrase that uh, that absolutely, I, as a writer, I read it and went, "Oh, damn, that's too good." <laughs> uh, it was about it was about the the f- those first talkies. We we talked about it earlier, the Michael Curtiz uh, yeah. Noah's Noah's Ark, and you say the the patter of these first talkies before the before the sort of deluge is is gonna come and it was just so, sort of like oh i see what you're doing noah's ark <laughs> the rain but just that the, the description of the patter of those first few sort of semi-talky films before the real sort of uh the before the flood came you know it's, yeah. it's so apt in terms of describing Noah. Oh, thank you. I, I, I did. Yeah, I did, was quite pleased when I wrote that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody writes that accidentally. That's <laughs> no, no. <laughs> superb. Okay, so absolute. Uh, so thanks so much, Matt. For that's um... all right. I've really enjoyed it. So that was my conversation with the appropriately named Matthew Page. Uh, we went through a heck of a lot of films in a very short period of time. And I think we dealt with, that's going to be one of the weightiest discussions we've had on writers on film. Uh, really, we really went into into some stuff. But uh, yeah, I found it really, really interesting. I hope you did too. Uh, his book, 100 Bible Films, is released later this month. Uh, uh, sorry, later in May, uh, depending on when this episode is out. And uh, and all that remains is for me to thank Elliot Atkins for the music, Ali Howard for the artwork, and thank you, the listener, for listening. Until next next week, um, please take care. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns